guys to another edition of your adrenal fix. Uh, my name is Dr. Joel Rosen. I call myself the adrenal fatigue recovery ninja. And today it's my pleasure and honor to be talking to Alessandro Ferretti. Um, Alessandro uh, has, has spoke, uh, had many talks on, at, at ShyCon. That's how I learned about him, Dr. Lynch's conferences. And I have the pleasure of having him here today to talk a little bit about adrenal fatigue, dispel some myths, and talk about specifically what constitutes a healthy diet and how we can track what's specifically good for us and, and, and make sure that we have as much energy as possible. So, Alessandro, thank you so much for being here today. Hey, you're most welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. And so, Alessandro, can you tell us just to introduce us a little bit about who you are? I know you're a nutritional researcher, you know, exercise enthusiast, um, even, I believe, engineer in, your, in sort of your past life. So can you tell me a little bit about you know, who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, I think in, in a nutshell, uh, I, I started as a nutritionist. Well, prior to that, I always had an interest on trying to understand how things work. Um, I used to be a motorbike racing engineer, so um, always loved the cause and effect. So if I do this, how would the engine perform? If I change that, how, you know, what is going to be the effect on the performance and, and so on. Um, and then became more interested in health when I moved to the UK, obviously being Italian, um, I, I, I moved across Europe. And um, I then attended a, um, a science-based nutrition college. Um, little I knew at the time that perhaps the science using the college was a tad uh, cherry-picked. Um, so uh, when I got out to the real world, I started to see that the vast majority, there the were some benefits, um, yet at times things didn't quite work out. So this is how I got a little bit more interested in doing my own research. Um, and especially in recent years, I've been looking at um, how how the diet affects our physiology. So rather than taking for granted what science may say, I wanted to record, I wanted to understand, I wanted to monitor how the body will actually you know, react to certain dietary changes. And this is when I went down rather than a rabbit hole, I think was a bear hole, completely you know, overwhelmed by information and you know, starting from the effect of carbohydrates, proteins, and fats, and then going down to the quality of the diet and how sleep affects the diet and how the diet affects the sleep. So it's been, it's been a very interesting journey. And the, 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 the more I research and the more I'm researching, the, the more ignorant I feel. And it was really interesting compared to as soon as I qualified, I thought I knew everything as perhaps some people do <laughs> so I had to take a massive huge step back in 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 my egotistic career <laughs> so it was great it was great to put me back in my own place so that that's pretty much what I do in my story yeah you know and it's a couple key distinctions there is number one is to you know when you get into practice it really that's what it is it's learning how to apply and being open to um, challenging the status quo and um, and also yeah. 
Um, you know, I, I learned, I was one of those that was at the conference when, you know, I went through the exercise physiology program and we were taught to, you know, for glucose control, you know, how many have been taught, put your hands up, um, to be um, small meals more frequently to maintain glucose levels. And as you mentioned a lot of times, right, same thing, uh, as you've mentioned a lot of times, well, you know, that may be good, but you're constantly going to have elevated, uh, you know, glucose levels, and that may not necessarily be good. Yeah, so when we look at the applications, is heavily dependent upon context. So, for example, we had a few athletes that unless they adopted that specific um, nutritional strategies they just were not performing and for them eating little and often was amazing their glucose would go very quickly back to normal there was no real sympathetic activation and it was brilliant but for other people and the proportion of the people that did respond well with that and didn't respond well with that is highly contextual to the subset population that we apply that rule for me, regardless what, if I eat little and often, um, it's a metabolic disaster. Whereas for some other people, is the only way how they can function properly, although maintaining a good and efficient glucose level. So when, when, when people make out a general rule, I, I, the hair of the back of my head which i don't have but let's assume i had them it will you know they will stand up because i thought well how do we know unless you actually measure your glucose response right. then we don't know if uh, what would be your response there are there are genetic indications that you might so certain companies like for example dna fit and 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 and, and other companies will give you a carbohydrate sensitivity predisposition actually that seems to correlate pretty pretty great so if someone has a test like that instead of pricking their finger all the time they may start to think right okay maybe i should have less meals so but in a nutshell is what you said so depending upon the inflammatory response the sleep and their predisposition utilizing carbohydrates sometimes little and often is a metabolic disaster whereas other times is absolutely fine right and and it seems like the key to that like you've said and what really piqued my interest with everything that you say besides everything else that you say is the fact that um, you have the applications for the athletic population and we found that a lot of the tools and those data can be extrapolated for the unhealthy population. And so um, that's what's so intriguing in terms of, let's maybe talk a little bit about, um, you know, what, if, if we're recommend, and, and specifically for the subgroup that I work with that I've told you a little bit about as we, I, we talk about adrenal fatigue as people that are exhausted. Yeah burnt out and they're not able to handle stressors. So, you know, they want to know about MTHFR and they want to know about Dutch and organic acids. And those are all great, but let's talk about getting back to basics and figuring out how we can actually determine what the best route for them would be um, going forward. And let's just, first of all, I'll make, it, make it clear. What would first um, be your impression or how, well, how do you feel about the term adrenal fatigue? Because I know we talked a little bit about it earlier. Tell me a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm not sure I'm going to be very popular <laughs> after what I'm going to say. Um, <clears throat> so um, you said beautifully earlier um, about me taking data from athletic performance and transposing that to other subs of population. Now, it is my great observation and belief that seldomly or seldomly without checking if that is true or applicable, you can transport a certain result from one subset population to another. So for example, in the keto world or low carbohydrate world, you, you, people take data from, for example, sports and performance of elite athletes and apply that data to people that are diseased. Most of the times that has some strong implications which may differ between the two groups. So this is something that I definitely urge people to constantly bear in mind. Is the study done or is the advice taken from observation of a certain subtle population? Yes, no, okay, which one it is? And is that applicable to myself on an N equal one or my, my clients and patients? So there are sometimes similarities, but we need to investigate that a little bit further. Now, interestingly, an athlete going towards under-recovery presents very, very similar scenarios in some metabolic pathways of someone that is adrenally challenged. But even that is, so my definition, so when I hear the term adrenal fatigue, uh, I just envisage quoting a doctor uh, called Melanie McCube in, in, in Australia. I have this vision of the two little tiny glands at renal, so above the kidney, um, drinking pina colada and mojitos in some beach, uh, trying to regroup and recover. That's, that's, that's what the term actually in my head, kind of right. in a very facetious way, right. uh, brings around. The reason why I'm saying this is not in any how, shape or form to be judgmental or, or, or making fun of it. It is a real scenario that we have. However, unless we have data from ACTH, from adrenal output, cortisol, cortisone, then we can't just define that with a single term. This is the problem I have with it. So when someone uh, comes to me and, 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 and wants to understand, wants to, me to work out a supplementation because they are um, MTR or, or, or and MTHFR and CBS 699. And, and, uh, okay, so the first thing is why there is that condition in the first place? Why do you think that you are adrenally fatigued? Is it endocrine? Is it immune? Is it nervous? Is it a combination? Which proportion? What are the mitochondria doing at that level? Why the mitochondria are not functioning well? Could be toxic load, could be heavy metal, could be arsenic, could be cell danger response, could be PAMPs, lipopolysaccharides. From, so there are so many different facets of that, which most of the times people think adrenal fatigue Ginseng is good for adrenal fatigue and they take ginseng, but they, they, they have very little understanding of what is actually, is it the AHPA axis? So is their perception through the amygdala of the hypothalamus pituitary axis that is the problem? 
in that case, they can take ginseng up until it comes out of the ears, but unlikely, my assumption is that unlikely we're gonna see great benefits as perhaps Dr. Carrie Jones has way more eloquently explained uh, if you have interviewed her. Yeah. Um, interestingly, she was the first person that crystallized that thought in my head. Um, I was kind of a kid in a candy shop uh, thinking, wow, that is exactly what I've been suspecting, but I never, I was never be able to actually materialize. So the term of adrenal fatigue, I tried to see it as a conglomerate of different met metabolic pathways that are not working symbiotically. Uh, they're not working well together, wanting to be mitochondrial, hormonal, nervous system. Now, if someone starts to measure things like SCTH, for example, or um, heart variability or blood glucose, might have some inclination of where that could potentially be from, or uh, perhaps looking at further investigation in order to find better where the problem might originate from. So if there is a very strong reduction in heart variability and they already have previous data and they are shattered and the glucose is higher, although they have low energy, in that case, my, my investigation will definitely go towards nervous endocrine. Right. Whereas if it's more of a chronic state where sympathetic activation isn't that different from the mean, assuming that the person has mean values, and the glucose is heavily elevated and yet they feel hypoglycemic and i'm making the distinction to say they feel hypoglycemic then in that case maybe more of a chronic inflammation cell danger response and but these are all conjectures and assumptions that will, will require further investigation right yes you know and you say it eloquently yourself too um it kind of points to the you know your sort of term that you've come up with which i believe is great is that 80 20 rule alessandro where you want to know yeah. what are those um those major influencers that are gonna drive the major responses and that's where getting back to basics are gonna get into so what i would want to talk about now would be um, I, and the people that I tend to see or identify with adrenal fatigue are what I call the perfect storm, where they have the genetic susceptibilities. On top of that, they have the environmental triggers. They've never learned how to control their glucose levels. They don't understand the difference yeah. between hunger and craving, as you talk about. They, um, they have toxic burden. Um, so let's talk about um, that one part where we, most of the audience that I know that we've talked to know about what cell danger means and basically the mitochondria, you know, shift the way that or their priority um, and they shut down other systems in favor of, of, of prioritization. Um, but you've mentioned yeah. that one of the major um, areas um, where that happens um, and where the mitochondria lose the epigenetic control is right at that insulin receptor glut type of um, uh, property. So if we could just talk a little bit about that, um, that would be great for my audience. So I don't know the best question to ask you, but let's talk about that. So the, the, imagine 
especially given the last um, three to four months work I've been, I've been looking into, um, the body, the body is one of the most amazing things we will ever own and it's so complex. So I've been researching what are the effects of an immune activation and inflammatory response. Now, earlier I mentioned that there are some similarities between athletes that will under-recover, what people may refer as overtrain, um, and people that would be, have, you know, that, that would be classified as adrenally fatigued. And I'm using, again, this as because it's common terminology, not that I favor that specific term. Um, and one of the things I notice is that there is often a, a low grade, low to medium grade chronic inflammatory response present. And normally that would manifest itself in higher fasting circulating glucose with aberrant peaks of cortisol and cortisone as you as people may want to you know hit the rewind button on dr caris jones uh, perhaps uh, seminar or podcast that she did so one of the first big alarm bells for me is when someone has low energy and yet the fasting glucose is elevated automatically i'm starting to think that okay, maybe, maybe a mitochondrial assessment through organic acid or whichever way, whichever you know, test people want to use um, might be a very good idea because if, if, if the mitochondria is in a cell danger response, the, the ATP output is, could, could be quite reduced compared to the heat that will emit and or free oxidating radical. You know, at the end of the day, the body recovers and fights infection through the production of free oxidating radicals. And the mitochondria is one of these amazing things that is able to perceive changes within the flow of special chemicals within the blood in order to then activate this danger response is not that we want to avoid the cell danger response. We want to make sure that the, the, the cell danger response is effective in order to protect us from things in our environment. So if I am ill and I got a viral infection or whatever infection I'm, I'm recovering certain things, I want my body to make sure that it will engage in that in order to <clears throat> recover, protect, rebuild, and et cetera, et cetera. Unfortunately, given a certain environment, um, this process becomes pseudo-chronic. And often the energy, instead of coming out as ATP, it comes out as, to certain, whichever proportion, heat, and uh, obviously free oxidating radicals. This is what we tend to refer as uncoupling. And some people are more predisposed than others. Uh, some people seem to be getting away with more stress, more load, more toxin, more toxic load. Um, and some evidence very, well, I'm going to say very weak. I'm sure that people will argue that heavily. But um, some evidence from EMF starting to affect um, certain people more than others. Uh, some of the studies, um, I have to say, are not terribly well designed, but this is not an area of my research, so I can't really uh, comment uh, a lot on it. Um, but we're starting to see that mitochondrial action has obviously a substantial uh, function. 
The question though I often ask is to myself is why there is that cell danger response? Is that because of the uh, person's perception of their environment? So A, HPA axis, is it just because the person has too many things to do plus negative emotional load or too heavy lifestyle, diet is not supportive of that specific load. So this is when things are starting to, 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 to become a little bit more complicated yet very, very interesting because it's down to the, to, to the understanding of what generates that shift in mitochondrial functioning. Right. And, you know, and that's where I, I have this question that I knew I wanted to ask you because I wanted to talk about the difference. And I know that makes the hairs of the, the neck stick up for you as well in terms of um, the difference between uh, data tracking and biohacking. And so um, as far as, um, you know, you used a great analogy, Alessandro, where if a plane is turning in the air, there's a lot of mechanisms that are going on behind the scene. And it's the same thing with mm. the body, you know, um, less, yeah. less, less substrate, more substrate, uh, less oxygen, more oxygen. Um, is it there? Is it not there? Neurotransmitters. And so it's this whole orchestra of, of a symphony that goes, you know, on behind the scenes that um, where when I look at adrenal fatigue with my patient base, I more clarify it as um, not able to handle stressors physiologically, not able to handle stressors yeah. mentally, not able to have energy, you know, output throughout the entire day and crashing and not focusing and anxiety and overwhelm. So, so back to the original point, um, tell us a little bit about where um, now figuring out where the zone is in terms of the difference between data tracking and biohacking um, with the five major yeah. uh, components that you've come up with. <laughs> sure. Um, it's just, uh, so the, the, just the word of tracking, um, Biotracking is often confused with biohacking, and, and they're, they're, in, in my view, they're very, very, very different. In one, you observe, which this is the, the, the tracking of the data. It might lead to the other one, to biohacking, but I find exceptionally insulting to our evolution and our physiology, our egotistic approach of changing one thing that we have resolved that specific problem. Now, the body isn't everything else but linear. If you look at the recent work of Dr. Tommy Wood with uh, um, Chris Kelly, looking at, you know, uh, integrating computer science into predictability of, of, of um, protocols, um, learning machines. The reason why is exactly because of what you just mentioned. We would not have enough brain power to compute all the different variables that can affect our physiology in order to give a very specific result. So for example, if you start to think, let's say blood glucose. I have been studying metabolic behavior with blood glucose for many, many years. Now, starting from my N equal one and et cetera, et cetera. Now, what is interesting is that when we 
when we look at blood glucose, how many mechanisms are in the body that affect blood glucose? And just something as simple as blood glucose, we struggle. So there is inflammatory response into leukine, TNF-alpha, interferon gamma, cortisol, cortisone, insulin, glucagon, the state of energetic. Is it iso, hypo, hyperenergetic state? Are the cells packed with glucose already? So we need to, this is just glucose level. Imagine for a whole pathway involving adrenal function. Is it their perception of the stresses that their environment? So the, the, this is the reason why many times I think that biohacking could be remarkably dangerous, not dangerous in a bad way, but it, it, could, be, it could be quite tricky because by hacking one path, we have very little understanding of what are the repercussions in a whole physiological view from a bird eye view. And that's the reason why I really love, as mentioned, the work that you know, Christopher Kelly and Dr. Tommy Wood are actually doing, and to a certain extent, other, other, colleague, other colleagues of mine, which in the near future, we, we, we may team up and, 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 and do a lot more research on it. So that's the main difference. Tracking, you just observe. You observe what's happening, and yes, you can draw a conclusion, but you don't track in order to hack. You track in order to understand, to observe, and then to take very specific actions, which I don't refer to as hacking. Right. I'm not trying to trick, to trick the body. I'm not trying to, to, to cut corners and into making a certain choice. I'm trying to reinstate into the body the correct environment and physiology in order for the body to perform at its best or healing or rehab or whatever that may be. So this is where I'm coming from. I'm not saying that I'm right. I'm, maybe the hackers are right. I don't know. But I, then, I, I tend to prefer to observe, measure, cause, effect, move on. Yeah. And you know, you, you, I got to be honest with you. You mentioned um, the term in your last conference called apophenia which is our desire to have a certain result with study. And so I was super excited, Alessandro, when you were talking on, uh, at ShyCon 217, and then it was like, okay, everyone's different. You know, it's like, I was like, give me the, give, give me kind of the hat, you know, I wanna know like what everyone needs. So, um, but basically um, it also put the light bulb on my head and say, okay, we need to, you know, for my subset, I need to look at fasting glucose. I need to look at HRV. I need to look at life load perception. Yeah. I need to look at physical activity. And yeah. so those are the big five that you've talked yeah. about. And so, um, yeah. you know, let's talk about maybe just a little bit about um, why we do that um, ultimately to track data for the end result of, um, you know, uh, commensurating the work they're putting into their program and the outcome they're getting yeah. of feeling more energetic, like sort of finding that sweet spot of what's right for them yeah. may not necessarily be right for someone else. So that's what my whole program yeah. is based on now. So if you could just talk a little bit about right. that and then I'll let you, you know, I'll let you kind of give me some insight for that. Sure. So um, in the way, 
if someone would have genetic information, um, I tend to not do genetic testing beforehand. Okay, so normally I check that the basics are <clears throat> are covered, and these will will be inevitably the, the, the big five, what I what I call them. So um, obviously, diet, being a nutritionist, physical activity, uh, sleep. These are the 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 main ones I tend to focus, and then life load. Uh, so these are the four aspects. I added now another one, which is the degree of inflammatory response. So I think as them as the big four plus one, okay. because you know there are different things we're doing. So one are lifestyle choices, the other is something that is happening inside the body. But let's not get stuck into definitions. So. Um, if I don't have genetic information, I tend to try to clean up these as much as I possibly can. The amount of practitioner that comes to me and say, oh, you are the expert on, you know, in genetics because you're a friend of colleague, whatever, or, you know, Ben Lynch and et cetera, which I'm not, but sorry, yes, I am colleague and friend of him, but I'm not an expert at all in that. Um, they, they want a very specific supplementation program based around their genetics. The first thing I do is, how are you sleeping? What's your perception of your life load? How's your diet? And do you move? Not even exercise, HIT, CrossFit, do you move? And inevitably, nine out of 10 people as a very rough estimate is not covering the basics. Well, I don't, I don't, but do consider that most of these people, the people that come to see me are other practitioners. Right. So because they think they have addressed the basics or because they don't give the right relevance to their basics, what they then got left is wanting to go in very fine details of finessing supplementation. I don't tend to work that way. Now, if people would have already a genetic material to present to me, I would look at the genetic material first to try to understand better which environment they would be in or could potentially perform better in, then looking at covering the basics, and then once basics are covered, then refine with perhaps adding a little bit of supplementation, perhaps modifying certain things. So this is the kind of how I tackle it. First, basics, and then refining. Or if I have genetic reports, then look at the genetic reports to try to have better information on their environment, or what environment we assume will suit them best, then looking at the basics in that environment and then move on on the, on the finessing. But I haven't seen long lasting positive results of people not addressing these four and not modulating inflammatory response. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. That is, yeah, it's really brilliant. This is how, yeah, sorry, you go. No, well, what I was going to say, it's brilliant what you're saying, because 
I almost like it better when someone doesn't have any, uh, it's not on their radar yet in terms of genetics and MTHFR, because yeah. then that leeway, that six weeks of time, gives us that flexibility to address the basics. Um, and um, and yeah. it's a very reductionistic model in just every, in healthcare, you know, in terms of the indoctrination of, take this for that, take that for this. And it kind of filters down to holistic health too, unfortunately, in terms of like Eric, Dr. Eric always mentions like, you know, they're taking 17 different supplements. What else can I add to that? So Alessandro, I have a term, it's called um, lowering your stress footprint. I actually had it uh, copyrighted, stress footprint, because my idea is um, like the, you know, the ecological system, uh, footprint um, if we can do less, less is more, and we can help that body function at optimal levels, knowing your life load, knowing your physical activity. And like you've poignantly said, like for some people on a zero to 10, 10 being like overwhelmed with stress and zero, zero being bored, some people get um, higher um, glucose and lower HRV and worse sleep with low, str low stress. So, you know, I think yeah. it's really important for us to understand and work on the basics because, you know, it's, it's what's gonna see you through to, to the other side. So um, I think it's amazing what you're, you know, what you're doing. And I think it's really a paradigm shift in, in healthcare in terms of, it's kind of like real time um, data tracking to figure out what is your um, minimization of your stress footprint and allowing your body to heal naturally. I, what would you, would you agree with sort of that that sort of conclusion? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So the the the, the, the other thing I tend to consider is how how good and enjoyable is the stress. I mean, is it something that is you know, counterproductive to your emotional well-being? Or is it something that you're just busy but achieving things that you really want to achieve, but just careful that you're running a bit thin on the ground? So that has an impact. The, 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 the stress hormones are different. How we actually, do we engage fears? Do we engage more of amygdala and neurocortex? Do we, do, do we, do, do we sleep well? There is some really, really lovely work coming out um, in, in recent years uh, in relation to sleep. And, and, but what I mean by that, we always knew that there is a strong connection between sleep and performance and sleep and ability to withstand stress. But we always been under the impression that if you miss a good night's sleep um, or a week of good sleep, you can recover it at the, at the weekend. Untrue. That... That sleep that you miss day in and day out, or even on that night, is lost. So that ability to um, uh, function, recollect the information that you had on that, that deep sleep, REM sleep that you have missed, that's lost. So it's, it's, it's not quite as kind of rosy as we see it. It's, it's a little bit more complicated. And same things for other aspects. So our ability to, 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 to look at our life load um, in an objective manner, that's another problem because people think about it as a subjective manner, what is a high stress for me could be absolutely totally normal for someone else. So, and I see this with my, with my partner Jules, which is 
even way better nutritionist than myself and how she how she can deal with certain things it will send me absolutely bananas and the other way around certain things i do as a matter of fact she she, she would find it stressful so and th th these are all things that we tend to consider and that's the reason why i am often interested in the person's perception of the stress this is when self-reported data i think is really really important and if you do then specific tests like the dutch test or whatever then you actually start to see a reference so okay that's strange because the person thinks that you know they're not very stressed yet look at these hormones and then you kind of dial in and you think right okay so maybe there is a little bit of denial maybe they don't realize how what is the impact that they have maybe genetically they're predisposed to have higher level of stress hormones whatever that may be and then we can take action on it in relation to diet movement activity and etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah ab absolutely you know Al alessandro when i was trying to get into um chiropractic college in canada there was only uh, 170 spots or 175 spots for 3,000 applicants. And I realized, okay, well, I better, you know, apply to the U.S. Um, because it's, it's a lot easier. So I ended up getting a second degree. That's when I went back to school and got a degree in psychology. And, and then I applied again to Canada and I didn't get in again. I thought, oh, what a year wasted. I got another degree, but it didn't get me into the school that I wanted to, but I have this degree that I don't really need, but I just enjoyed taking the courses. But how wrong I was because now I find that that 80-20% rule really applies with, um, with how we perceive stress. And, and so we use it as a tool in, in my program where we try to reposition the, the perception of the stress. So if it's a de-stress, um, how can we harness that to be a eustress? Um, so I use the analogy of a boat being in the ocean. And the toughest time a sailboat has when it's in the ocean is when there's no wind. Um, but if there is wind directly at your face, it's going to be hard to move forward. Um, but you can harness that wind um, to take you a little bit off track, but to ultimately use that energy to go forward. So I guess a long way of what yeah. I'm saying is we can look at um, their perception of, okay, well, how is this not necessarily de-stressing? How can I make this more a eustress in terms of, okay, um, I just got in a big argument with my wife and she's mad at me. Um, maybe it's the world telling me that I need to... Um, pay attention more or I need to listen to the signs that it's telling me so it's harnessing my energy and and then therefore you can like you said track the heart rate variability and see that now you're perceiving that stress differently it's ultimately helping your body heal quicker as well so I think it's yeah. a great point about what you say um, I guess the last question I would have Alessandro is as far as um, glucose goes um, because I think that's the biggest epidemic out there you know Dr. Lynch um, really shows the pathway of fatty liver and glucose and NADH and pseudohypoxia and all of those things that happen as well so um, what would you say sort of for the novice who just doesn't understand 
um, how to control their glucose and they heard about, I know it's a loaded question, that keto is good or paleo is good or intermittent fasting is good. You know, what would sort of your recommendation for that person that just doesn't know what to do, but they know they have a glucose problem? What would you recommend for them to do? Right, right, right. So in a totally unjudgmental, unpatronizing way, um, get the basics right. So the first thing, the, the two or three most common phrases I keep repeating into, like uh, in, in my uh, lectures, even practicing, even lecturing at medical team, teams, um, is eat food that looks like the food as you would find it in nature. Right. So, and people say, oh, that's easy. And uh, no, it's not. Because if we eat grains, we eat them refined, either through pasta, bread, cookies, whatever you want. If we eat vegetables, they would be chopped and processed. If we, if we eat meat, it's unlikely to be from a steak. If we eat fish, it's unlikely to be from a fillet, given a certain environment. I'm not taking us as a subset of population. So <clears throat> people start to <clears throat> ask me questions about macros. So the first thing I think, instead of the macros is just clean up your diet. Forget keto, forget paleo, forget Ornish, forget, just start to eat food that you would find it as you eat it, not far off as you would find it in nature. So that automatically cleans up so many potential risks that would affect blood glucose, heart availability to a certain extent, and so on. So <clears throat> by addressing some of the basic stuff, um, and we can extrapolate this from our diet and actually go on to all the other aspects. Instead of buying CBD oil for trying to get your sleep, get a routine that is absolutely sound. Go to bed at the same time, naturally wake up. If you need an alarm clock, you know you're sleep deprived. There is no two ways around it. Um, uh, Professor Matthew Walker, in one of his recent books, uh, described that process beautifully. Um, it's called Why We Sleep. Loved it. Um, um, same thing for physical activity. Okay, before you engage in a personal trainer to the latest trend on high-intensity interval training, CrossFit, we all know that these have perhaps some advantages in certain scenarios, but the first question is, do you actually move? So to go from nothing onto <clears throat> CrossFit, <clears throat> yeah, would bring advantages. But the vast majority, according to the data they have analyzed on a certain subset group of population, just starting moving um, already gives you that 80-20 that rule. So 30 minutes of form of physical activity, raising your heart rate above X percentage automatically will give you some benefit. So that's the reason why I focus so much on the basics. And I think that is that that makes even more sense with your, with your question, with your loaded question, because you said, yes, okay, 
look at the glucose, but once again, instead of looking at the macros, is your glucose high because the macros are right and you are under the keto group or low carb, high fat or whatever, and yet you are very malnourished from a nutrient perspective. So is the food nutrient dense enough for what you're doing, for your stress response, for your physical activity or lack of? Is there an underlying inflammatory response there already present, which would require perhaps a little bit more carbohydrates in not in, so there are so many things that people would need to consider in whichever context they are, but the first by far looking at the basis, clean up the diet, make sure that whatever you're eating has not been processed. Is, does it come from a packet? Yes, question that straight away. If it comes from a packet, something has been normally added, removed, processed, and metabolized, and these are things that I would be very careful. This is before embarking in any nutritional program. If we then happens to have genetic data that says the salmon is more carbohydrate sensitive, has a propensity to absorb fat more than someone else, or satiety predisposition or methylation predisposition, this is when we can start, okay, so now you've got your basics right, given your MTHFR, are you having enough green leafy veg? Yeah, that leaf in a burger, that's not enough, <laughs> generally speaking, <laughs> to counteract a very heavy life load, poor diet, poor this, and an MTHFR mutation. We kind of know that. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to do that. Right. So this is when I really want to zoom out rather than in and actually say to people, well, okay, so get the basics right first before keto, low carb, and et cetera, despite I've been researching these things for a very long time. It's often, you know, it's like they say common sense a lot of the times isn't so common, you know, and, and that's, a, that's one of those things where it's basics. Um, Alessandro, I want to thank you so much for, for being here, sharing your time with me. Um, you know, I wanted to let my, uh, my audience know um, how they could get in contact with you. Um, I know you have a website. Um, and it's, is it your name, alessandroferretti.com? Or what is that the yeah. name? Okay, and I'll yeah. post yeah. the dot com. Okay, and the other thing dot com or dot dot com or what? Sorry, dot com or dot uk. It's it's the same. But if okay. you Google my name, normally can normally would come up. Okay, and then you know, I guess for um, how would I, I had I had your name on here. I wrote it backwards. So if we can spell it out, because I'm gonna post all the links after. But for those that are listening to it real yeah. time and want to know it right away, yeah. um, how, so can you spell it sure. out? Yeah. Absolutely. So A L E double S for sugar. Um, A N D for Delta, R, O, and Ferretti is F for Foxtrot, E for Echo, Romeo, Romeo, Echo, Tango, Tango, Indigo, Ferretti. Awesome. And, and you know what? I wanted to also tell you, I got, I got a little gift for you. Um, I don't know if you're interested in it or not, um, but um, when I've been listening to all of your lectures, and I thought it was brilliant when you said back to basics. 
Um, so I ended up going to uh, GoDaddy.com and I bought the URL back to basics, although it didn't have .com, it had .net. Um, so I don't know if you're interested in that or not, but I would love to give you that domain and you can develop it or... <laughs> yeah, is that cool or what? <laughs> Yeah, that's lovely. Thank you so much. I'll, I'll, yeah, I will accept that. Okay, great. So I'll, I'll figure out now. I just got to figure out how to transfer it. Um, but ultimately, yeah, that's fine. yeah. so I'm really happy. Um, you know, I, I, there's probably, you know, like I said, I took about 50 notes that I wanted to do before we talk. There's so much more I'd love to talk to you about. But I respect your time and I'm really happy and grateful that you were here today and I wish you all the best uh, in your research and if I could be of help or uh, collaboration with some of my data that I'm compiling, um, I would love to do that. Yeah. As well. Thanks for tuning into today's show. If you like what you've heard and you're interested to see if you're a good fit to work with our Adrenal Awakening program, here's what to do next. Head to adrenalfatiguesociety.com forward slash apply and book an appointment to speak to our team. Here's how it works. We'll get on the phone for about 45 minutes and get you crystal clear on three things. Number one, where exactly do you want to be with your health and where are you now? Number two, what are the genetic components that haven't been discovered that are impacting your health? And number three, what are the environmental triggers that may be overlapping with these genetic components keeping you from getting optimal health? Remember, getting your energy back just won't happen by itself. You need expert guidance to make that happen. We've helped clients all over the world transform their lives, quadruple their energy, and fix their metabolism, and make the world a better place. To see if you can do the same thing, head to adrenalfatiguesociety.com forward slash apply. I'm Dr. Richard Joel Rosen and we'll talk to you soon.